this whole semester in RUF, we're talking about uh, relationships under the, I guess, cutesy little title, Relating, Dating, and Mating. Um, sometimes we refer to it as gospel-driven relationships. What difference does uh, what Christianity proclaims about the good news we call the gospel, what difference does that make for the way we relate to others? And tonight, we're particularly looking at this issue of idols, idolatry, which is a theme in Christian theology, a theme in the Bible, and its impact on relationships. As I was looking at the schedule and the different events, it seemed a lot of them had to do with getting married and finding the kind of people you want to marry. Is that right? That's been a lot of that kind of stuff, right? And, you know, students sometimes are interested in those sorts of things. Uh, I've been doing RUF, working with college students now, 16 years, and um, I think this topic is always of interest. And for myself, as I have kind of wrestled with relationships and the various issues around that, um, I, I really have come to see this issue of idolatry as more and more important because so many of the issues that we struggle with, uh, so much of the things that we find difficult and dissatisfying in relationships uh, connect to this issue of idolatry. One of the core convictions of Christianity is that the relationship with God is always linked to your relationships with other people. It's a core conviction that the, the horizontal relationships are connected to your vertical relationship with God. And this is because, uh, as what Christianity would say, is that this is because God made us for relationships with himself and with others. Now, I recognize that not everybody who's here would consider themselves a Christian. Maybe you're mildly interested in the topic um, or interested in finding out more about Christianity. Maybe you're just here for convo credit. I understand that happens. Uh, but you should know a little bit about Christianity if you want to be an educated person, and I guess that's part of why they have faith development as part of the Convo program, okay? So I want to uh, talk about this really as, as part of the wisdom that Christianity has to offer to the world. There are lots of different ideas about relationships, lots of different viewpoints. You can talk to people and find um, people with strong ideas, people with lots of confusion, um, people that are looking for uh, input on how to think about relationships, others that think they've got it all figured out, the whole gamut. But Christianity also says that it has something to offer to the world about this issue of relationships. Because Christianity, like other religions or other worldviews, um, has a big picture idea of where we came from, what's wrong with the world, how things are going to get better, and ultimately where we're heading. And, and all worldviews, all kind of religions seek to answer those kind of questions. And the answers that Christianity gives have a lot of relevance for the relationships that we have. So here's what Christianity says. We were made for relationship with God and with other people. Now, Christians don't always speak both of those things as clearly as they should. There are some Christians who I would call super spiritual, who give you the idea that if you know God, you don't really need other people. That, uh, it, and sometimes this plays out in like, the idea that if I'm really, really content with God, um, or really, really in love with God, then I shouldn't even need any other people at all. And Christianity says that's not true. Before sin and brokenness entered the world, in the Christian view of things, God said in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good for man to be alone. And that's important for you to understand. Even when mankind had God and there was no brokenness 
in the relationship between God and man, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And then, of course, and we, look, we talked about this a little bit last week, but just by way of, of review for those who weren't here, when God creates the woman, the first thing that Adam says is, wow. I know it's not there in the English translations, but it's there in the Hebrew. He breaks out into poetry. And so what Christianity says is, yes, you were made for God, but that's not enough. You also were made to be connected to one who would make you break out in poetry. So if you come from kind of a Christian background, which a lot of people have, where you're made to feel like if you really love Jesus, then you shouldn't really fall in love with other people and romance and all that kind of stuff has no place in Christianity, that good Christians always have a frown on their face and do the right things all the time, then you don't understand why does Adam break out in poetry when he sees Eve. He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But you also may be one of, one of those kind of people who's grown up in sort of a lot of evangelical churches give you sort of this idea that if you really loved God, you wouldn't need anything else. And Christianity says that's not true. That's a lie. So relationship with God is what we were made for and relationship with others. But, and this is, again, the story that Christianity offers for you to try on and see if this fits both the longings you have and also the pain that you have. Christianity says that that relationship was ruptured. And the relationship with God was ruptured And when that happened, it spilled over into the rest of life. And so right away you find that Adam and Eve, instead of walking with God in the cool of the day, this is kind of the the way it's, it's described in the story, now they're hiding. And not only they're hiding, they start blaming each other and fighting with each other. So the relationship with God, when it's ruptured, then the joy and the, and the peace and the security that that relationship should give the man and the woman, when that's broken, then they have to try to get all of that life, all of that joy from each other, and things begin to crack under the weight. Because God never created relationships with other people to sustain and to give you all of the joy that he made you capable of. And so this is what Christianity says. You were made for relationships, but when the relationship with God was ruptured, it spilled over into all of life and every other relationship you have. And here's the way to think about it. In Psalm 19, and I, I put this on your little outline, so if you want to look with me at this passage, it's a fascinating passage in the, in the Psalms. In Psalm 19, it says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Now, you may not think that that's that important of, an, of, of a topic or a, a statement there, but let me tell you, this is a very important thing for you to understand about the reality of the world we live in. What Psalm 19 is saying is that the stuff that God has made is preaching about his glory. That's what that language is, pours forth speech. It's not just saying that the creation is sitting there passively waiting for you to explore it and then use it to argue against your friends that don't believe in God. No, it's saying that it's pressing upon us, pouring forth speech. Everything God has made is stamped with meaning and is proclaiming it. And what the Bible says is that human beings, whether they follow Jesus or not, have to deal with that speaking. It's built into the creation, and you can't avoid it. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul talks about, the Apostle Paul talks about how 
mankind, when they quit listening to God, began to not listen to, to him about what all the created stuff meant, that it was for his glory and for their joy, but they began to not listen to what God said it meant and instead began to rewrite God's meaning and say their own meaning over it. In other words, God created work. God created work, the Bible says, so that you could bring out all of the God-glorifying potential that he built into his creation. I don't care whether you're called to do that in the realm of sound and music, art, dance, literature, science, medicine, engineering. God has created a whole world of God-glorifying potential, and he's dignified us by inviting us to work in it and to, and to work and to fashion all of this stuff. But what happens after the relationship with God is ruptured, mankind no longer wants to do the work the way God wants it to be done. Instead, now we try to use work to say things that it was never intended to say. For instance, we use work to say, here's why I matter. Here's why I matter. Here's why I can know that my future is safe and secure because I have a job and I can take care of myself. There's a, a great uh, scene in one of the earlier Simpsons episodes where Bart Simpson is asked to say grace over the meal and his prayer, I love his prayer, he says, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Like, that's, that's right. That, that's how most of us think. He's just honest enough to say it, right? The idea that work is the way we pay for everything ourselves so we don't need God. Rather than it being a way to join in with God and enjoy him and his creation, we use it to say, I don't need you. But here's the thing. The true meaning that God has stamped into work and built into his creation will keep pushing back at you. And so if you put, if you try to make work say, this is why I matter, you're very vulnerable, especially if your work is not satisfying or if you lose your job. And there are a lot of people who don't just have trials when they lose a job, but their whole being and reason for existence is gone because they haven't been just using work to provide good things. They've been using work to say, this is why I matter. So whenever we try to make the creation say something that God didn't create it to say, it breaks down and it battles against us. And everybody is in this position. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then it jump down to verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, this is one of the key passages in the Bible explaining idolatry. But don't you think that it's just about, you know, little figures that some pagan primitive peoples worship? It says, actually, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a place where it talks about how the, the, the elders of Israel have set up idols in their hearts. 
So the idea that idolatry refers to your heart worship and not just to little figures that you might set up and bow down to is all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. In Colossians chapter 3, for instance, the Apostle Paul says that greed is idolatry. So idolatry is central to the Bible because worship is central to the Bible. And, and what it's saying here is that if things get out of order, if the good things that God has made become for you ultimate things and ways to create meaning and life and purpose and security apart from God, it will break down on you. Maybe some of you can relate to this example. Some of you probably have parents, maybe moms, though I don't want to just blame this on moms, so it seems sometimes this is the case when I talk to students. Moms who their whole life is, is, is really based upon their kids' success. In other words, they're living for whether their kids are successful or not. Anybody relate? Anybody? Maybe you know somebody who's had a parent like that. <laughs> Though, you know, the longer, the more that Belmont, the more you students here are, have sort of higher GPAs. And, you know, the, 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 the scholastic aptitude to get into Belmont keeps going up every, year after year, right? Much different now than it was 16 years ago when I started working here. Seriously. Which means that the kind of, uh, struggles of sort of perfectionistic, overachieving students are much more here. Like Belmont students are becoming more like Vanderbilt students all the time as far as the, w the way people study. And the, anyway, uh, I know you don't think you're like Vanderbilt students, but in, in a lot of ways to get into college now is, is much more of an elite thing than, than you realize. And it, it, it sort of, so maybe some of you have had this sort of thing. So if your mom is basing her whole life on whether you're successful, here's what happens. Her kids are driven crazy. And the thing that she wants more than anything, to be able to rejoice in her children and know that they love her and that she's for them, she can't ever get it. Because the more she demands that they fill her with joy, the more they have to move farther and farther away from her. The thing that she wants the most, she can't get because she's put so much pressure on her children that they grow to hate her and resent her. And even if they are successful, she can't enjoy it. You know why? Because she's filled with anxiety that tomorrow they may blow it. In other words, if you make your children's success an ultimate thing, you will never be able to enjoy your children. And they probably won't be able to enjoy you either. You see this, I see this all the time. I remember I had a student from Vanderbilt years ago, you know, who just obsessively had played piano all of her life, all of her life. She finally, like in her senior year in college, was like, I'm not really sure why I play piano. Like, I don't like piano. I think I've always just played the piano like six, seven hours a day because it's what my parents wanted me to do and I wanted to please my parents. But all of a sudden she kind of woke up from this, this sort of world and this reality and was like, why do I even do what I do. Maybe you're in that kind of place. There, there are things sometimes that we give our lives to, we give our heart to, that we end up not even being able to enjoy, even things we were good at. Because now they've become ultimate things rather than just good things. The Bible says that when we make good things that God has made and God has given us into ultimate things that we have to have for life, for peace, for hope, then they spoil. 
and they crumble right before our very eyes. And this is true whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. This is one of the things that Christianity offers to the world. Try this on and see if this isn't true, that the more you make things that are good things into ultimate things, the more they sour and the more they break and the more desperate and desperate you have to become putting more and more effort into them to try to get the same kind of peace and security that they used to bring. So God's meaning keeps pushing back at us no matter how hard we try to keep it down. I don't know if y'all like Buddy and Julie Miller's music. I love their music. You know, Buddy lives just right behind Bongo, so sometimes I'll see him. Um, some of the greatest songwriters here in this town. And uh, one of their songs, Dirty Water, I love this line. He says, they say this, you can try to lock up the door. Sorry, you can try to lock up the truth, but the door won't shut because the truth just keeps coming out like blood from a cut. Love that imagery because the truth seeps out like blood from a cut. The brokenness, the truth keeps pushing back. Now you think about maybe something in your life that bothers you or that worry, you worry about and think if it might not be connected to trying to suppress the truth, trying to say something different about God's meaning and his world than he said. And this is sex in the soul week, so maybe we should talk about sex in this way too because I think it's another uh, good example about this. The Bible would say, Christianity says this, that God created sex with meaning. He stamped it with meaning. He created sex as a way for you to say, I belong to you. Now, this isn't just some puritanical ethic. This is what Christianity says you were made for. Sex, your sexuality is a way for you to say, I belong to you. And I would contend that at least when you first started having sex, you felt married the next day. C.S. Lewis gives this story. He says, you know, a lot of people try to argue that sex is just a sort of a natural biological appetite. Just like when you're hungry, you eat. When you get sexy, you sex. And it's just, you know, how, how you do it, right? But he says, imagine if you, if you went to this town, you went to this, this town, and you saw this, this nightclub, and you walked into the nightclub, and there were all the lights were down low, and there was this stage, and there was a curtain, and there was the dun-dun-dun kind of music going, right? And all of a sudden, they start to slowly pull the curtain back, and the people are screaming and hollering, just going crazy, and, and the, the curtain is revealed, and all of a sudden, it's a hamburger, and he says, if, if you were sitting there watching this, you would conclude that these people are either starving or they're crazy. But one thing you would not conclude is that this is just food. The way we react to sex proves that it's more, it's more than just a biological thing that we do. The truth keeps pushing through. Well, some argue, on the other hand, that not, not only is sex not just a biological thing, it's everything. In, in other words, there, there's been this interesting move as our culture more and more has, and more people have decided that maybe the knowledge of God is not something that they're interested in. Um, there's been sort of, well, there's just this inevitable need for something bigger than yourself. And for a lot of people, sex is a good candidate for that. 
I remember years ago, John McEnroe, the tennis player, I don't know why, they gave him a late night talk show for a little while. Probably none of you have seen it because I think it was on before you were even born. Um, but I remember seeing one of the, I think it was on like two or three weeks. Anyway, I don't know why he got a talk show. All he was famous for was playing tennis and screaming at the referees and throwing his racket at people. Um, it didn't seem to make for a good conversationalist. But anyway, Sting was on. You guys know Sting, right? And um, Sting was, he was talking to Sting and he said, uh, Sting said that for him that there were two ways that he touches God. Sex and music. And now this, you know, here's, you got to have the context. Sting had just been, had, had this interview, I think it was in Rolling Stone, where he had talked about how he could have sex for six, seven hours at a time. Now, I, I don't know, maybe some of you haven't had sex. That's, but in the days before Viagra, you know, that was not typical. And... Um, and so I remember thinking about this, and I, I'm, I'm listening to him say that the, if you want to touch God, sex and music are the doorways. And I thought, well, what about the rest of us mere mortals? Because I can't, I can't sing and write, and I can't do that. Right? So at one level, it might seem like this great thing that sex is everything. Sex is how you touch the divine. But gosh, what pressure that puts on your sex life right? So much so that it fails to ever really satisfy, honestly. Um, there's a guy, Ernest Becker. Er, uh, I haven't read him, but Tim Keller quotes him in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which if you want to explore this a little bit more, that's, a, that's an excellent book I would recommend to you um, on idols of money, sex, and power in our day and age. Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. But he quotes this guy, Becker, who's a Pulitzer Prize uh, winning author, and Becker says this, the failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is so much a part of modern man's frustration. No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize the love partner, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position we want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human partners could not give this. And so, I, I, you know, I offer sort of a contrast to that John Mayer. Because I was at the show in Bridgetown Arena a few years ago when he had said something really ridiculous and it offended everybody on Twitter. He said sort of this kind of racial comment. Do you guys remember this? Maybe some of you were John Mayer fans. You might remember this. And I was there and I was like, what did he say? Because he's like all apologetic and he says that he's not going to get on um, Twitter anymore. He's going to get off of all this kind of stuff and just have this fast because he'd said something really horrible, I guess. So I like had to track it down. I don't normally go to Playboy, you know, to, to find interviews, but I was like, he said something. I got to figure out what it is, right? And he has this unbelievable thing about how now that he's 30, 31, I think he was about the time, he's decided that no real relationship with a real woman can really live up to the conquests of his 20s. And so he's just very forthright about, you know, the importance of pornography and masturbation for him because it keeps him out of relationships. He's like, I'm a relationship menace. So, you know, I found a solution. Listen to what he says. 
Here, Playboy asked him this. So you'd rather jerk off to an ex-girlfriend than meet someone new? Because he's saying, even when I'm having sex, I'm thinking about other people that I used to be with. And I would honestly would rather masturbate to fantasies of my former girlfriends than be with somebody new. Because new people uh, are just too much trouble and too much difficulty in their, you know, head case, all that kind of stuff is what he's saying. And here's his answer. He says, yeah. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. The best days of my life are when I've dreamed about a sexual encounter with someone I've already been with. When that happens, I cannot lay off myself. Now, you might think that's a little crude to, to read in RUF. I hope not, because you guys think about that kind of stuff and talk about that stuff. I know you do. But do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, given the choice between real sex with needy people who have feelings, I would rather turn to pornography and masturbation. And there's a lot of people that have made that choice. They're just not usually so forthright to say it. Uh, that's what I find so amazing. No shame. Very conscious. I'm going to weigh the pros and the cons of having relationships with real people and the pros and cons of, of pornography. And pornography really wins. Because it doesn't have any of this entanglement. It doesn't have any of these feelings. It doesn't get people, you know, all this kind of stuff. Is that what we've come to? Well, what does all this mean? Here's what it means. It means that our problems are deeper than just behavior and feelings. And, and I think t too often Christianity doesn't say that very well or very clearly. I think sometimes you'll go to churches and you'll basically get the, the idea that all that God really wants to do is make you feel better. And you go to other churches and you might get the impression that if you listen to the sermons, that listen to the songs, you're saying that all that God cares about is that you do the right things. Uh, what Christianity actually says is that what you feel and what you do is always connected to what's ultimate in your life and what you worship. And here's what Christianity would say that the things that you put your trust in are not just random things. They're connected to your pain and to your fears. If you follow the trail of pain in someone's life, you will get to commitments that they've made to never let themselves be put in that vulnerable, scary place again. As Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, says, if you pull up your idols by the roots, you'll find your fears clinging them. They cluster around your pain and your fears. And he offers this little chart. Turn, turn the page over. You might find this, this helpful because a lot of people, this may be a new concept to you thinking about idolatry, and there's a number of ways of trying to get at, well, what are my idols? And there are lots of them, what we call near idols. Like for me, chocolate. You know, I love chocolate. Why do I like chocolate? Well, because I like comfort, but also because I like to be independent and be able to do what I want. And sort of eating a piece of chocolate, especially when my wife's not around, is a way that I say nobody can tell me what to do. And it's, a, you know, it's, I mean, I, it, it shows here. So it's not completely without consequences, but there certainly are other things I could do that would wreck my relationship with my wife and family as ways of proclaiming my independence, right? Right? So it's sort of like this sort of safe little way of saying nobody can tell me what to do. Maybe you've got things that you do for that. But ultimately, these, these little things that we tend to put our hope in are ultimately connected to one of these big four 
idols. Comfort, approval, control, or power. And if you think about them and you're trying to think, well, what, what is it for me? What's ultimate? What do I value most? Do I want comfort? Do I want approval? Do I want control? Do I want power? And you'd probably say, well, I kind of like all of those things. Can't I have all those things? But I would suggest to you that one of them is actually truly ultimate in your life. And to get at what it is, he lists some things here that might be helpful. So to, just to, to example, to think about comfort. If your idol is like mine and comfort is what you really live for, it's your ultimate thing, then the price I'm willing to pay is reduced productivity. Now, what does that mean? That means I'm going to back down from some opportunities because it might be too much work. And I'm okay to only be able to do so much stuff. Because actually, you know, who wants to work that hard? So you might think, well, that's crazy. Well, then comfort probably isn't your idol. If comfort is your ultimate idol, you will trade. You're willing to pay the price of reduced productivity. And your greatest nightmare are stress and demands. I, I tell people all the time, um, usually without shame, though there should be some shame attached, that I would rather be a resource than be responsible. I love to give my opinion about things. I love to tell you what you should do and what I think about this and that. Just don't put me in charge of stuff, right? I'm, I don't want stress. I don't want demands because it might impinge upon me doing what I want when I want. How do other people feel who are in relationship with me? They usually feel hurt. Ask my wife. They feel hurt. They feel like you value your own comfort more than being with me, more than finding out what's going on in my heart. And that's true. Because I might find out things are going on that make me uncomfortable or that require me to actually go out of my comfort zone to interact, right? And what's the problem of motion? If, if your comfort idol is working and you're pretty successful at it, boredom. Boredom. In other words, you might, if, if I ask you, what's your biggest problem? You're like, I'm just always bored all the time. It's probably because you've eliminated anything from your life that might actually sort of turn up the apple cart. In other words, we live in a, in a culture where safety is, is in so much preached and crammed down our necks, and then we wonder why all these people are bored and they're like surfing the internet and you know, going into extreme sports and all this stuff because the, the, normal, the normal adventure of life, we've, we've cut it out at every, at every place, right? Let's do another one, approval. If approval is what you're really looking for, then that means you're willing to pay the price of less independence. Of course, you can't do what you want all the other time. You have to submit what you want to do to what, uh, what will please other people. And if approval is ultimate for you, you're willing to pay that price, right? Seems crazy to me because I want independence and I don't care if you like me or not, honestly. Like I will give up you liking me if it keeps me from having to do stuff, okay? But you may be just the opposite of that. What's your greatest nightmare? Rejection. Well, that's pretty obvious. How do other people feel around you? Smothered. Has anybody ever told you that you are smothering in the way you relate to them? It may be that approval is your idol. And what's your problem emotion? Cowardice. You can't tell people the truth. You can't confront people. You think you're a great friend, but there's a fatal flaw, right? 
control. What about control? The price you're willing to pay? Loneliness and spontaneity. Your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. So you're the person, you know, who before you pick up the, call, the phone to ask somebody out on a date, you like rehearse like 10, 20 times exactly what you're going to say, what they might say, and how you're going to respond. And you've got it all figured out like a chess game, right? But there's no spontaneity in your life. And you're, you're okay with that. Others feel condemned by you. You're, it, they're never good enough. They never do the right thing. And your problem emotion, worry. Because you know, listen, guys, I know it's terrible. At this stage in your life, you work a lot of crappy jobs. Summers, maybe even right now, right? Jobs that you're totally overqualified for. You're so gifted, you're so talented, and you're working like silly retail jobs, right? Um, that don't use your brain at all. And, and here's, here's the thing. It's, it's terrible. It's so boring to go into a job that you're overqualified for. But let me tell you, if you have a job that you can't possibly do, that's hell. To every day know that you're going to go to a job that you can't possibly succeed at. And what, what Christianity says is if you're trying to control your world, that's the hell you're living in. You weren't made for that. How about power? The price you're willing to pay? Burdened and responsible. But at least it all depends upon you. Right? Your greatest nightmare is to be humiliated, exposed as weak. Others feel used, and often your problem emotion will be anger. Now, this stuff lives itself out in your relationships, and, and I don't have time to go in. I wrote this stuff out because I wouldn't have time to talk about all this. Let me just say it this way. Generally, when people come together in relationships, whether it's friendship relationships or dating relationships, they tend to veer either towards independence or dependence. And often what happens is these two people come together because I will tell you, one of the things that was really shocking to my wife and I when we were in premarital counseling, uh, when somebody suggests this to us, but it's something that I always tell students now when I'm doing their premarital counseling, is that you're attracted to people not just because of the good qualities about each other, but because your idols mesh well with their idols. In other words, like for Wendy and I, I really don't like to feel things. And so it's really convenient that Wendy feels things really deeply because when I'm around her, I feel like I feel things. But I don't actually have to go to scary places and feel things, right? And for her, like, it's hard for her to trust and to not be anxious. But when she's around me, I'm a rock. Yeah? And so rather than trust Jesus, she can just be with me. And me, rather than trust Jesus to feel things, I can be with her. Do you see how that works? Think about your relationships. There's not just good things that draw you to each other. There's also ways that your idols fit together and serve each other. And often, people, without even knowing they're doing it, go into relationships with this unspoken little deal. You don't challenge me here. I won't challenge you there. And a lot of people that think they have great marriages, 20, 30 years, get to the point where there's no intimacy because they basically have made these little deals and sort of, sort of partitioned off their world. You don't challenge me here, I won't challenge you there. And it may look, it may have the superficial feeling of intimacy, but in honesty, there's, it's not really any life going on there. And there's different ways that that all works out. Here's, here's the thing, though. I want to I say, where does God come into all this? What does he have to say to us tonight? What is the good news? There's a great passage 
in Isaiah chapter 44. Um, I don't have time to read the whole passage, but I put some of the verses here. But let me tell you what it says the first part. Basically, God comes to his people, uh, Israel, and he says to them, you basically have put your trust in other gods rather than me. Okay, and what he does in this chapter is God uses sarcasm. I don't know if you think sarcasm is Christian or not, but God uses sarcasm, really strong sarcasm. He basically says, look, the one who worships an idols is ridiculous. It's like he takes this wood, he cuts down a tree, half of it he uses to build a fire to roast his food and says, ah, I am warm, look at this fire. And the other part, he carves it into a little idol, he puts it up, he sets down, he bows down to it and says, you are my God, save me. And he says, it's ridiculous. And you look at it, you're like, yeah, that's ridiculous. But here's the thing. God says the same thing about your people pleasing. If you think that you can create for yourself a safe, comfortable existence by getting people to like you, God looks at you and says, no, you can't. You're a fool. It says actually in the book of Jonah that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Why do we hold on to these ridiculous things? And here's why. Because we don't know what else to do. We don't believe God is really as good as he says he is. Because here's, here's what the Bible says. Ultimately, unbelief, not believing God is who he says he is, that he's as good as he says he is, opens the doorway to you having to find God's substitutes. And, and it goes so far that, that this passage says that the idols blind you and bind you, and you can't even see that the thing in your right hand is a lie. Look at these verses here. It's in Isaiah 44. It's uh, near the bottom of the page. Talking about the one who worships idols. This is such a graphic image. The one who worships on idols, it says, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. You ever tried to get full on ashes? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Got to eat a lot of ashes to start to feel full. He cannot save himself. doesn't say he won't. says he cannot save himself. Or say, is not this right thing? thing in my right hand a lie in the bible the right hand is the place of power so what it's saying is the thing that you're trusting <clears throat> that you're trusting for power you can't let go of it unless something more powerful more stable more secure comes before your vision you can't just quit worshiping idols unless something more beautiful more powerful more stable comes along you can't say is it not this right thing, thing in my right hand a lie. But then look where God says next. Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath, Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. You know, in the Bible, whenever God calls his people Jacob, he's reminding them of who they are by nature, which is Jacob means the deceiver. He's a scoundrel. But God comes and rescues him and changes his name into Israel. And God says, look, this is who you are, but return to me. Not return to me and then I'll redeem you. Return to me because I have redeemed you. Do you understand? 
What the Bible is saying is that God comes to the rescue. This is what Christians mean when they talk about the gospel, that God comes to the rescue, and he, and he comes to the rescue with sort of a two-pronged attack. He says to your idols, he shows you your idols, he says, look, these don't work. They're ridiculous. They're empty. They're not working for you. And while it may at times feel like God's killing you by exposing your idols and how they don't work, it's, why, it's how he loves And then he says, but listen, not only does this idol not work, you don't need it because I've redeemed you. I've made you. I will not forget you. The thing that you're trying to get from this idol, whether it's comfort or power or approval, control, you already have it. You don't need it. Remember who I am and what I've done. And ultimately, the Bible points us to what Jesus does on the cross and says, look at him. Do you want approval? How could you get greater approval than what comes to you through Jesus' death on the cross? Jesus, the one who had his father's perfect approval, the father spoke from heaven at his baptism and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And as Jesus stood on the Garden of Gethsemane looking at the cross, he, he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. If there be any other way, don't make me go to the cross. Nevertheless, not your will, but my will be done. The cup he's talking about is from the book of Isaiah. It's the cup of God's wrath that he's going to make his enemies drink to the dregs. And Jesus, the one who had only known the perfect approval of the Father, rather than live without us, his people, he takes, he takes God's wrath on his head. Listen, he didn't cry out when they beat him. He didn't cry out when they put a, a, a crown of thorns on his head. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What broke his heart on the cross was to feel the displeasure of his father, the one who had said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he didn't do that for the heck of it. He did that so that you would never have to hear those words. So that you would know that because he took the wrath of God in the place of sinners, you could have approval beyond your wildest imagination. An approval that you could never lose because it was earned by Jesus you want control? The way you, the way you understand this, listen, Jesus allowed himself to be hung on a cross. And make, make no mistake, he said, I could call down legions of angels to end this travesty of justice. People mocking him, saying he saved himself, let him, you know, he saved others, let him save himself. And not only does he not call down God's judgment upon these people, but he prays, Father, forgive them. Why do you think you need control? Because you don't trust God. But when you look at Jesus and him crucified, doesn't that do battle against your fear and your suspicion and your unbelief? I could keep talking, but I love this quote by, um, by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher. 
He said, when I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever rebel against one who loved me so and sought my good. Those are words worth pondering. So God calls us to remember and to rest. And I will tell you this last thing. This is the key to really loving other people. I will tell you, if you begin to understand idolatry, you have a very powerful weapon. If you understand somebody's idols, you know how to manipulate them. You know how to cut them. You know how to get what you want from them. But you also know where they need to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel. Encouragement, encouragement is speaking truth into the particular place where someone fears and is always tempted to seek after idols rather than God. And it may be different for different people. And you have to get to know their story. And then you have to be able to say, I know that it's hard for you to believe that God loves in this way, but he does. And let me remind you about that again today so that you can set, set aside your trust in, in this, your talent, your beauty, your money. You don't need that. You don't need to trust that. I know why that's so tempting for you to trust that. But let me remind you of what you've forgotten about God and who he is and what he's done for you. That's how to be a good friend. That's what you're going to need your husband or your wife to do one day. Not only to see your idol, see your sin, but know how to speak the gospel truth in a way that it gets into your heart and it sets you free. This is what Jesus promised, after all, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray.